Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to the Salix Soul Podcast. I'm Andrew Mellon. And today on the show, my guest will be Derry writer and activist Tony Doherty. Tony is the founding member of the Bloody Sunday campaign, a former IRA prisoner, and his father Patrick was executed on Bloody Sunday in 1972. I'd like to thank you all for your continued support as we produce our free content across all our platforms. As I've said before, we do not go behind a Patreon and we don't put anything behind a paywall. So if you've been enjoying the podcast and you can't afford it, please hit the donate button on our homepage at celticfanzine.com and for as little as the price of a point, we can continue to grow the podcast and our other independent Celtic media platforms as we enter our 20th season producing independent Celtic fan-driven media. And folks, we're looking for episode sponsors for the new season and for the fans in. And advertisers have the benefit of advertising on all our platforms in video, audio, fans in, social media and on our website. I always get tongue-tied when I say this, but we are fully fan-funded and sponsored by Celtic-minded businesses, Celtic supporters clubs and individuals who share our values. And for more information, you can contact us through the website, on social media, or by emailing us at info at CelticFanzine.com. And on the website, you can also support us by becoming a member, buying some of our merch or fanzine, subscribing, or as I said there, donating for the price of a point. And don't forget to check out our merchandise on our online shop, and our new Celtic t-shirts are up there. We've got the one star means more, and also the United Colours of Celtic, which has proven very popular. Well, the Euros finish on Sunday night, and hopefully football will not be coming home to England, but will be going to Italy. I'll be supporting the local Italian restaurant and then the local Irish pub. I've always had a soft spot for the Italians, well, since Wednesday night anyway. Before that, I was very fond of Denmark. It's just the way football is in rivalry, isn't it? Don't forget, folks, you can still download the digital edition of issue 115 and we're currently starting to work on issue 116 of the fanzine. Thanks very much for everyone who bought the print edition. It's sold out now. 
And we thank you once again for all the support. And don't forget, if you do subscribe, you will receive a free T-shirt. And talking about T-shirts, I got a great deal during the week from Declan McLaughlin. I got two CDs and a T-shirt for the price of a pint. Well, price of four pints, really. But 20 quid, folks, for that deal. So check out Declan's social media pages. And uh, he'll also be playing us out at the show today with a tune called Running Uphill. So Declan, we're loving your stuff. And... uh, We'll continue to support you and hopefully you'll come down and play for us in the studio and maybe in a venue when it's safe to do so and all this COVID is over. Anyway, so what's been happening on on the Celtic front? Well, the players and the manager are down having a pre-season camp in Wales and they beat Sheffield Wednesday in the first pre-season game on uh, Wednesday. I watched the match at home and uh, I have to say it was unusual because we had three halves, well... Not, not so really three halves, but they did play three 30-minute um, halves, I suppose, games on a nice summer's afternoon, I must say. And a lovely setting they are in, um, as I said last week, they're not in the sunshine of Dubai, but it was lovely and sunny. And there was a, a wee cricket game going on in the background as well. So a very pleasant afternoon and a 3-1 win. And you know what? There was a good uh, mix of experience players out there and uh, plenty of youth on display for the manager to look at and after falling behind to an early goal there the boys settled in and won 3-1 and people say results are not important in these games it's all about the fitness but I wouldn't want to see Celtic lose an argument never mind the game and one young player who caught my eye and others because I got a few messages about him and i seen a few bits on social media was uh, Owen Moffat he reminded me a bit of uh, in looks anyway of Jamie from 90s Liverpool band Space with his flowing uh, ginger locks and Hopefully we'll get to see more of him during the rest of the pre-season with the returning international players from the Euros joining up with the squad and that means some of the younger players will be making way. And talking about younger players, it was great to see uh, young Rocco Vata signing a new contract. Rocco, of course, is son of Rudy, who we've had on the podcast and Rocco's also cutting his teeth on the international youth circuit with Ireland, thank God. We, we lost uh, a couple of players to the English team. Um, they used to sing around the vein, now they sing God Save the Queen. Young Grealish and Young Royce, but hopefully we can keep Rocco because uh, he's chose us so far over Scotland and his father's country of birth, Albania. And if you've been uh, tuning into us during the week, folks, you'll see we've been busy in the recording studio. We had Matt McGlone on from the Alternative View. He joined us for chat as we look ahead to pre season and the upcoming season and chat about the new manager. And we've also had John Hartson and Paul McQuaid chatting to us. Paul from Celtic Shed and John, of course, a bit of a Celtic legend. And um, them podcasts and videos will go out over the next couple of days. And uh, as this podcast goes out, we hope to be sitting down with a current Celtic player to ask him a question or two about pre-season and the season ahead. And we'll also have that up across our channels on audio and on video. So please visit Celtic Fanzine TV, folks, on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button. I think there's a little alarm button. You can hit that as well, and that'll alert you when um, we have anything coming out, and you'll never miss an episode. And on there as well, you can check out our playlist where we have all our shows, Talk from the Terrace, Celtic AM, Millage Meets, Celtic Soul Shots, Grand Isle History, uh, and we have bits and pieces from Celtic. And we also have all the audio of the Celtic Soul podcast up there as well now. And they are available also across all platforms. So don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your preferred platform or provider. And all podcasts, both audio and video, are also available on CelticFanzine.com. And you can also subscribe for the newsletter there and check out our news and interviews and bits and pieces we put up during the week there. And thanks for reading, listening and watching.
Tony Doherty is a writer and activist from Derry. He's published three books, This Man's Wee Boy, The Dad Beside Us and The Scalper and Me. He's a founding member of the Bloody Sunday campaign and a former IRA prisoner. His father was executed on Bloody Sunday by members of the British Army Parachute Regiment, along with 12 other innocent civilians, on January the 30th, 1972. Hi Tony, you're very welcome to the Celtic Soul podcast. At a time when Bloody Sunday has been recently back in the news, with a former member of the British Army's Parachute Regiment charged with murder and attempted murders on Bloody Sunday, and the news is now he will not stand trial, and prosecutors have told the families, the man referred to as Soldier F. How does this make you feel? Um, I was hoping you're going to ask me an easier question there, Andrew. Uh, well, it, it's, it's to be honest with you, you're never that far away from it, uh, regardless of what is, is, is going on. Uh, but the, the recent... Um, matters with regard to Soldier F and in many respects have uh, brought it back uh, to the to the centre of things and obviously to, to the forefront of my mind as well. The thing about Soldier F uh, is that the the report of the Savile Inquiry that came out in 2010 basically found that he was responsible for uh, killing five people um, uh, and he acted without fear or panic. You know, so he, he was cool and collected the whole time, and he also attempted to wound, wound uh, another number uh, of our innocent uh, civil rights marchers. So uh, it was he was then charged in, in two thousand nineteen with the, the murders of two. Um, one of the five was my father, uh, but he, he he wasn't charged with his uh, murder. Uh, and also the um, the attempted murder of, of a few hours, and ever since then, you know, there's the the, the trial or the, the pre-trial uh, processes have have uh, been excruciating, uh, taking an inordinate amount of time. Uh, major issues about his, his ongoing anonymity, um, quality of evidence, all the, all the stuff that that they could use to obfuscate the uh, processes have have been used so they they're, they're, they're not going to be um, let go easy I mean clearly the uh, the idea of soldier F uh, or, or something like soldier F being charged isn't a popular idea with the British military nor between the British military and the uh, and the current Tory government or, or any British government uh, for that state. I think it probably would be no different uh, had Labour been in power. Uh, so it, it's, it's, it's deeply unpopular in Britain and I think what they have been doing over this last while is trying every trick in the book with regard to the particulars of, of Soldier F's trial uh, and then that they that came uh, to the fore last Thursday uh, when it was indicated by the public prosecution service that uh, that the charges that they, that they were uh, intending to not pursue the the prosecution any further because he didn't think there was a reasonable likelihood that uh, a criminal conviction would be brought about. However, just today today that um, the intention of the prosecution service has been uh, stalled. 
uh, at the High Court. And so it, it, the eminence of, of um, the charges being dropped against Soldier F is now probably going to take uh, to September to resolve. Uh, that, that's obviously for the murder and the attempted murder charges. Bear in mind that uh, Soldier F and quite a few uh, of the our military uh, people who were involved in Bloody Sunday on the day also stand to face uh, charges of, of perjury during the Sabal uh, inquiry itself, which sat between uh, 2001 and, and, and 2007, I think, and eventually reported in 2010. So um, the, the the prospects of, of a murder charge uh, don't look the best. I mean, I, I, I'm just saying that from a lay person and somebody who's directly affected. But if that's the case, I think the um, we, we could have an Al Capone scenario where uh, Al Capone isn't he's not convicted of, of the various sort of uh, gangster uh, crimes that were committed. Uh, by him and his gang in Chicago in the 1930s. He was eventually charged and convicted of uh, tax evasion. So uh, the, the chances are this may go on uh, against Soldier F from the point of view of, of perjury. Uh, but that would obviously be a, we have a relatively minor consideration. So it's still there. I mean, to be honest with you, you, you walk into your history every day in, in Derry because it's so everything happened in, a, in, a, in very sort of close uh, quarters. Um, so you're never too far away from it, but the soldier F thing has brought it back to the, the front and centre. Yeah, and like when, when we think of uh, those murdered on Bloody Sunday, you know, we, we think of the iconic images, the black and white pictures, you know, um, the videos or the film footage. But before Bloody Sunday, you know, you were only nine on, on, on that day, um, on a faithful day. So... But life before then, and you know, memories of your dad. And can you tell us a little bit your dad and you know who he was? Yeah, well, I suppose my my father was central to my first book actually, and, and the uh, the first book is called This Man's Wee Boy, and I, I I suppose had to sort of resurrect his memory um, from my own childhood memories and from those of my. Uh, brother and sisters, and our uh, people close to the family. So my father was a uh, working-class uh, man, uh, born and raised in the in the Brandywell area, where uh, where we were brought up uh, as well. Um, for long periods of, of of his life, he had to cross to England to work in in, in various jobs. Because there was no work in Derry, there was no work in Derry, particularly for for Catholic males. There was plenty of work for females in the, in the shirt factories and so on, but there was very little uh, for for Catholic men. So a lot of the the, the men folk would have had to uh, immigrate at different times to uh, to raise enough money for their families, and my, my father would have been among that group. Um, when he was killed, he, he, he was. He was working for DuPont. He was one of the lucky ones in, in, in Derry at the time to uh, get a job with DuPont uh, Multinational. Uh, we lived in a small terrace house in the Brandywell in Hamill Street, uh, two up, two down. Um, it, it was 
we, we had very much uh, an impoverished uh, upbringing, but it's, we, we didn't know that at the time. We just, it's just normal for us being brought up in the, in, in the rally well um, with practically nothing um, in, in, in terms of, of worldly goods, as it were. Uh, but it was, I mean, we all had a very happy childhood. Uh, we were well reared. Uh, my father was very religious and, and he would have taken us to Mass as, as children every Sunday and during the treat. We would have been made the walk, the uh, or force, we're basically forced walk to the chapel as well. I'm sure a lot of people uh, had the same uh, experiences as ourselves. Uh, but he was a very religious man, very, very simple man. He, he was somebody who was involved and very interested in, in civil rights, not necessarily uh, Republican politics, because that didn't really feature uh, for our family in, in, in the 1960s. Um, and on the day of Bloody Sunday itself, he, he was a steward um, on behalf of the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association. Uh, so there was, there was six of us children. The youngest was uh, was born in, in uh, June uh, to June uh, nineteen seventy one. Uh, so the, our, my younger brother Glenn was only six months when my father was was killed. So there were six of us, four four boys and two girls. And uh, my mother was twenty eight. I think when when my when my father was killed. Uh, so I've written about this extensively, and, and I've had the pleasure, in, in, in a sense, of of, um, of getting to know my father again through through memories and, and connecting all the different uh, memories up to to write a, a, an account of of his life uh, connected to my life and in the context of the of the family, and then growing up in the in, in the times that we we, we did uh, through the nineteen. 60s. I was born in 1963, and um, right through to the beginnings of the troubled period, and, and 1968 and 69. I remember it really being taken to civil rights demonstrations in, in the city centre. We didn't really know what they were, but they were considered safe enough, you know, for parents to take children. So I, I remember them very well. But I think um, by by the summer of 1969, I think there was a, there was more of a threat. There, there was a certain that there was a portents of, of um, bad things to come. Uh, let's say, and, and the the climate changed considerably uh, at that time, and in, in the in the days and weeks, and they're up to the Battle of Bauxite. Um, we live close enough to the the the, the Bauxite itself. Um, and then from 1970 on, it you, you could sense even as a child with the onset of the British soldiers on the streets, uh, which started off blissfully, by the way, at the, be at the beginning, because the soldiers were, were were welcomed, you know, for good or, or, or wrong reasons. They were welcomed, uh, and particularly they were welcomed by the children of the Brandywell, <clears throat> because they, they, they would have sent us to the shops to buy stuff for them, and they were all, they were all young squatties. So money didn't mean that much to them. So they would have handed us maybe fifty pence for for going to the shop, and fifty pence, and uh, in those days was a lot of money. Uh, or it wouldn't have been fifty pence in them days, but maybe half a crown or, or ten bob. 
that was a lot of money. So the, the idea of, of the soldiers being on the streets was popular in a, in a sort of grown up sense, but it, from a child's point of view, it was very popular as well. And it was exciting in a sense to have soldiers on the streets uh, camped at your street corner. But I, as I say, I, I've written about this uh, extensively and, and um, writing about the, the family was a very um, exciting thing for, for me to do because I'd forgotten a lot about my father and, and the times that we uh, were brought up. And uh, But I suppose I, I, in my adult times, I, I always knew that I, I would write something, but I wasn't too sure uh, what um, until I read Seamus Dean's book, uh, Reading in the Dark. Um, he, he wrote about Derry in the 1950s, 40s and 50s. And once I read that, I knew that I would also write uh, my memoirs. Um, and then I think family circumstances for me changed around 2013, 2014. So I started writing. I started the idea, I suppose, of, 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 of writing and reading quite a lot. Uh, particularly of childhood memoirs. Um, and so I, I suppose copied the styles of, of some of the, the stuff that I that I read. And uh, and and then I I had the, the, the bones of a book uh, done and I sent some of it to a number of, of publishers. Um, actually I sent it, I remember sending it on a Sunday night uh, to the Mercier Press uh, at half ten. On a Sunday night, and by ten o'clock the next morning, I had a response, and a new bit of response that, I, that was going to work out. So the, the the first book, this man's wee boy, really is, tells the story about from about my first memories about nineteen sixty seven up to the period immediately before and including uh, Bloody Sunday. Um, so the the book can be got on, on Amazon. By the way, it's called This Man's Wee Boy. Uh, and that's that for me. That's my favourite book. But I, I wrote another two, one about the aftermath, I suppose, of Bloody Sunday from a again from a child to teenage perspective, uh, including the period that I became became involved in the IRA, and then the third one, the the scalper uh, and me, um, again was about reconnecting with my father in later life, uh, my present days and then the the I suppose the uh, the journey that I took from prison to realizing that I had to do something about uh, the legacy of, of Bloody Sunday um, and the human rights sort of element of Bloody Sunday uh, as well this would have been in the 1980s and, and early 1990s so that's, that's the, the three books basically span those sort of critical periods of childhood, teenage years, and then into adulthood. Yeah, we, Tony, we all look back to our, you know, um, our teenage years and, and, you know, things that influence us, you know, normal things like football, music, um, sport, you know, girlfriends and that. But the teenage years after Bloody Sunday for those in, in Derry must have been... Um, there must have been big challenges ahead for, you know, young people, you know, to to get their head around what happened. And, you know, was there a sense that, you know, you had to get revenge for your father's killing? There, there definitely was a sense of that. Um, but it, it's important also to point out that, um, that in, in the 
in the immediate aftermath of, of Bloody Sunday, um, I mean, there, there was no police investigation. This is, you know, when 13 people were, were killed within the space of 20 minutes and an hour, 13 were, were injured. You would think somebody in, in the in the RUC would have uh, commissioned some uh, type of, of criminal investigation. So nothing like that happened. And so in, in, in many respects, the aftermath is, is, is as important as what happened on the day uh, itself. Because you, you had to deal with the, the the propaganda machine kicked in right away. Um, and it was obviously preconceived uh, that the British Army had engaged not human rights or civil rights demonstrators, but members of the IRA in, in, a, in a gun battle and had taken out so many uh, gunmen and bombers. That, that's that's what the, the initial story said in the hours uh, following the, the killings. And that's by and large what the British stuck to right through uh, the 1970s, the 1980s, uh, and right through the Sable uh, inquiry. It's incredible uh, what, what people would be prepared to, to believe. Um, and then what, what happened, instead of there being a criminal uh, investigation. There was a judicial inquiry Lord, led by Lord Widgery, who was a Lord Chief Justice of, of England at the time, the highest, basically the highest judicial position that you could that you could get. And he um, basically whitewashed the, the whole the, the whole affair. By and large, agreed uh, with the assertions of the soldiers that they come under attack. Some of the gunmen could have been involved, could have been bombers, and so on and so forth. Um, and it left it sufficiently open that most of the blame was piled on the those who were murdered, the wounded, those who had actually organised the civil rights demonstration, uh, which was organised, by the way, to, to try and free people from internment. Um, and none of the blame whatsoever was attributed to the soldiers. The soldiers' actions were, by and large, um, skipped over and, and described in, in like enough terms. So we, we grew up. With, with, with that, I mean, as you say, as we nine on, on Bloody Sunday, I didn't really realise what uh, was all going on at the time, and because and, nobody really sits down and tells you, and you have to sort of work it out. Uh, but the, the the years, so I, I knew whatever happened was 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 chronically bad, um, uh, but I didn't have the the, the detail of of uh, what happened to my father and the rest of the men and boys that were killed and but it was always there it was always there as, as, as a as a backdrop and in the foreground so it's all it was always behind me but it was always in front of you uh, as well and I think that that was by and large the same not just for people like me who were directly uh, affected and lost someone in bloody Sunday but I think by a whole generation of teenage uh, teenagers in, in, in Derry and actually throughout the north, and I'm sure throughout the island, the island um, who felt that they needed to do something uh, about about Bloody Sunday. Uh, and I remember, um, I remember um, very shortly after uh, Bloody Sunday, um, basically making a commitment that I would join the IRA uh, when I grew up and by 1972 the IRA was a fully fledged uh, guerrilla 
um, organization. Um, and I, I had played it even at that stage. Because I, I remember uh, one time we were playing on the street. It, it might have been July or August. It was a sunny day. And both my aunt and my, my mom were at the front door in Hamilton Street where we still lived. And I remember shouting over to my aunt, what, what age do you have to be to join an IRA? And I was still nine at the time. And she laughed and says, oh, you have to be 16, but it'll be well over by the time you reach that age, you know. Um, so she, you, could, you could see from that, you can sense from that what my preoccupations were uh, with regard to my father's death. And also, I was growing up in a highly militarised uh, situation. I mean, Derry was heavily militarised at the time. There was an army base at the bottom of our street and another one further up the road. And Derry was dotted, speckled with army bases uh, at, at the time. And the military the military basically took command and control of the city centre uh, as well. Not, not unlike what, have, what would have happened in you know cities like Dublin and Limerick and Galway, uh, Cork during the uh, during the nineteen uh, the late nineteens uh, and early nineteen uh, twenties. Um, so that, that's the type of position we a suggestion that we grew up in. Uh, we we grew up to to hit the British Army. There was riots in the streets practically uh, every day. The Bradywell was a a battleground, uh, which in, in, in some senses was exciting for us as children, uh, but. I always say that I would have hated being a parent uh, of, of young children in the early 1970s or at any stage of, of the 1970s because it must have been a nightmare wondering where your children were, were, were they involved in, in, in riots which could happen spontaneously on the street uh, or, you know, God forbid they could get involved with the IRA and you might never see them again. So not knowing what would happen to their uh, children. I mean, I, I know some of the families directly affected by Bloody Sunday. Uh, the McKinneys, who are good friends of mine, their brother uh, Willie McKinney, I think was 24 uh, when he was killed on Bloody Sunday. And anytime Bloody Sunday come on the news, the father would get up and turn the TV off. And they never spoke about it. And they, they, they knew that they shouldn't speak about it. And I, I remember uh, speaking to their mother um, many years ago, and she said to me that they felt that if they didn't talk about it, nothing bad, nothing further bad would happen to the family. And by bad, they meant losing another son to the IRA or going to prison or, or any of the things that could have happened, been hit by a rubber bullet or been hit by a live bullet. So a, a whole generation of... of um, young parents and young to middle-aged parents uh, grew up with, with the stress and the trauma of the, of the conflict because they knew that their young people would be vulnerable to revenge as, as I was and what my, all my friends were uh, as well. That, that's what we talked about. We were constantly you know, pretending to be members of IRA when we were 10. We, you know, you may have grown up with cowboys and Indians or or, or whatever. We grew up it was the IRA and, and the British Army, and we were the IRA, and we would uh, plan attacks on this, on the on the British Army, and all that, which with some children would do. But it obviously became deeply uh, ingrained and, and implanted in, in a whole generation. 
And uh, so when I reached the age of 17, you had to be 17, sorry, 16. You had to be 16 to get into the junior IRA that Fianna and the Heron. And I joined them uh, at that stage. It would have been 1979 uh, or so. But that all happened again in, in the backdrop of discos and, and, and dances and girls and, and all the rest of it. So in, in some senses, our, our uh, teenage years were normalized by pop music and 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 all of that but the, the big difference for us was that if you can write about disco or out of a dance the chances are you would get involved in, in, a, in a riot or, or something uh would happen between the people leaving the the um community center and the british army and the ruc that was almost a foregone conclusion every friday Saturday and, and, and Sunday. So th- those are the circumstances which we we grew up in. And and then, as I say, I, I joined the, the junior IRA in uh, 79. And when I went on then to join the IRA proper in 1980, I was asked, uh, I, I, I wrote about this actually in my second book, uh, about the recruitment process, the I suppose the progression on from the junior IRA to the IRA proper, and uh, there was a number of us gathered in a, in a kitchen in, in Chantal, which is a housing estate, it just used to be on the outskirts of, of the uh, of the city, built in the middle of the countryside. Um, we were all asked what our motivation was to join the IRA, and I I answered by saying that I wanted to take revenge for my father. And uh, and the 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 recruitment person who who had asked the question stopped me and said, "That's not a good enough reason to join the IRA." So I was actually stopped from joining the IRA, but I was allowed a second go. And I come back and I had I had my answers worked out well in advance this time. So I progressed into the IRA in nineteen eighty. And it, it, it was, I mean, I, I directly attribute my um, desire to join the IRA as, as a vengeful, uh, a vengeful desire. Um, it was motivated by the tyranny of the state. There's no other, no real other, uh, other way you can, you can put it. It, it wasn't naivety. It, it wasn't somebody banging a, a, a drum. It was, for me, it, it was pure logic. Because in, in terms of what happened on, on Bloody Sunday uh, and the aftermath in terms of justice, there was nowhere else to go. In my head, there was nowhere else to go. It was logical for me and for a whole generation of young people to, to do what I did. Um, actually, when I, I, I went to prison, as you said at the start, in 1981. My IRA career didn't progress very far, which in some, some senses is, is fortunate. Uh, certainly for me, um, but when I went into the Crumlin Road Prison in 1981, I was shocked to hear that so many people of my generation had joined the IRA because of Bloody Sunday. And that just wasn't people uh, from Derry where I'm from. This was people throughout throughout the the north, actually, and, and some people from other parts of the island uh, as well. So it did have a, have a very profound effect that the, the massacre had a very profound effect but also the the propaganda afterwards 
had a very profound effect and the denial of justice over, over the years, I think, had a huge uh, effect on a whole generation of young men and women in, in this city and beyond. And I think that, you know, ultimately led to the prolongation of the, what we called them the, the, the long war. Um, so that, that's really what, what motivated me as, as a, as a young man. It, it, it was to take revenge, uh, against the tyranny of the state. Yeah. And like only down the road, and I think about my teenage years, um, like when you, like you said, you know, you go to a disco, you know, there was girls, there was music, there was crack, but, but you know, when you're coming out, you know, when we're coming out, you know, we're trying to avoid getting, getting the thumping from maybe a hard, local hardman and, mm. you know, we're looking forward to a bag of chips, but you're, you're coming out to harassment and possibly rioting. So there's, not, there's nothing yeah. normal about that. Uh, well, it, it was, it, it was not, by the time I, I was a teenager, um, 14, 15, 16, uh, it had become normalised for us. So the whole sort of heavy militarisation and the whole thing about resistance uh, through the IRA had become completely normalised uh, for us. That, that's In effect, we had grown up um, at the commencement of, of the of hostilities, let's say, in, in 1970, 71. It, it, we, we just grew up with that and that became part of our our, our life and times um, um, became part of, of how you, you know, walked from one part of the city to an hour without getting stopped by the British Army. You know, choosing your route, that, that was a very, very common thing for, for us. So if you were did in Gairds, for instance, um, in Craigan, uh, which was a good four or five miles from Martin, our house, and you walked everywhere in those days. There's no such thing as a taxi. Uh, you had to wait, basically work out the route that you were less likely to be stopped and searched and harassed by the British Army and, and the RUC. It didn't always work. I mean, sometimes you would find yourself literally in the dead of night, surrounded by uh, British Army personnel, RUC personnel. Uh, and it was obviously worse if something had happened earlier on. Uh, more times than enough you wouldn't walk home. You would walk to your, the nearest aunt's house or your granny's or something like that, so you wouldn't have to do the full the full trek home. Again, that was just something we, we grew up uh, detesting that the British Army, it was clear they detested us. We, we grew up detesting the RUC, which was a police service at the time, and they detested us. That was clear. Those were just the terms of, of, the, of the street conflict uh, at the time. And, and and rioting was a was a a, a daily weekly pastime. And when we got out of secondary school, we, we got out of school. My, our school was in Craigan, St Joseph's. Um, and when you get out of school, you were you were almost guaranteed a riot every day when you get out because the British soldiers would be waiting at the gate for us. So and they they were all young men as well, but they were obviously heavily armed with. Uh, automatic rifles and plastic bullet guns and rubber bullet guns and gas and all the rest of it. Or if you didn't get a riot there, we would have walked from Craigan down to the bogside and you would have got a, you would have got your riot. So it, it, it was a daily it was a daily occurrence. That's what they say if you were rioting every day. But you know, by the by the mid seventies, you know, when I sort of came of age as, as a teenager, it was a common occurrence. It was just something that, you know, we were 
prolific riders. The right arm is ten times stronger than the left, and uh, with a deadly aim and, and, and all that, you know. Yeah, and it, it it just gets me thinking when, when you know you mentioned the word teenage, and I think uh, the undertones from Derry, and I think a teenage kicks, and it puts a whole different perspective because when you were, uh, I suppose, getting. Um, getting it more involved in the Republican movement, you know these boys. There was there was some lads in the area, and they were appearing on top of the pops, and it must have, that must have been yeah. surreal, surreal, like for I remember going to the going to see the the undertones at the local uh, disco. I would say it would have been nineteen seventy eight. I mean, the whole sort of explosion of punk rock was just sort of it was just integrated into this sort of scenario of of uh, of conflict between us as teenagers and, and the British Army. Punk just happened. It's, it's, I mean, some of the punk rockers would have been riding uh, as well, so they weren't entirely sort of immune from it. But it, I suppose for, for us, the, the stuff like the undertones um, was um, a, a, a bizarre sort of uh, occurrence during the whole sort of normality of the of the conflict, by the way, the the the, the, the two undertones, um, John and uh, I can't remember the the, the other fellow's name. Um, their their father was the coroner in, in Derry, and it was his uh, it was their father that um, delivered the the uh, coroner's report, where he described the killings of uh, Bloody Sunday as sheer unadulterated murder, and he got into trouble for, believe it or not, in Derry, he got into trouble with the authorities for using the, the terminology that they did. So there's a, a direct connection between Bloody Sunday and the and the, uh, and the undertones. Uh, but no, it, it was a, in some senses, it was a great time. Growing up, I mean, it, in, in many respects, I wouldn't swap any of the 1970s, because you know, it was a, a backdrop of all that, of uh, music, disco music, punk, and, and and all the rest of it, and it was just integrated into our lives and, and normalised. Uh, as I say, I mean the the, the whole idea of, of dating a, a, a girl or going to a disco was just integrated into the whole conflict scenario. You still had to protect yourself and, and be careful no matter what you were doing, or less careful depending on 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 your way of working. You know. Yeah, and you were when when you did join the IRA, as you said, it wasn't long before you were you were behind bars. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember much about you know the process when you you know going out on active service, getting you know getting lifted, going through the courts, and then with, with, you know you would have been in the prison like, during the hunger strikes, would you? Yeah, yeah, I, I actually done the. Uh, on on to the wing in uh, Crumlin Road on the first of March, nineteen eighty one, which was the day that Bobby Sands went on hunger strike, uh, and obviously he he came from a, a generation, well maybe half a generation be, be before me, uh, so I would I would have been in prison through throughout all all that uh, time I went in in eighty one and got out in eighty five. It was a time of great turbulence. Uh, personally, it was it was turbulent. You know, losing your relative freedom to uh, being left inside. You know, and you think back now that the process was 
delivered at, at uh, lightning speed, um, although it's, it, it obviously dragged out uh, at the time. Uh, and you think that these things are never going to end, but uh, there's always tomorrow. Uh, but the, there was a great sense of, of camaraderie and comradeship, I suppose, between the, the prisoners in, in Crumlin Road at the time and, and actually any of the jails in, in which you found uh, IRA prisoners. It wasn't people weren't, weren't left to their own uh, devices. They were they were assisted and, and supported um, by our prisoners. Not that was just the mentality that they that they had, and I ended up adopting uh, as well. The, the other thing that I that I noticed when I was in prison was, was the number of people who were uh, who were charged and subsequently convicted of uh, a whole range of offences, including murder, uh, who were completely innocent and whose whose cases will never reach the uh, public domain nor a uh, a successful judicial outcome, including their names. There was actually one one young man who I wrote about uh, in, in a full chapter in my third book called The Scalper and Me. And he, he was arrested a number of nights uh, after Bobby Sands died in, uh, I think he died on the 5th of, of, of May, I think. The, uh, the young man from the New Lodge Road in Belfast was arrested a number of nights afterwards and confessed to a murder of, uh, of an RUC man in, in the uh, Duncairn area of, of Belfast. And he was... The, the, the RUC actually convinced him that much that he that he um, that he did the murder. That when he came into my cell, cell five on on, on the ones the first landing on Common Road, he uh, he actually told me uh, in the cell to the two of us uh, how he had it committed the killing, uh, what weapon he had used, how he had sighted up the RUC man, and all the rest of it. And he had not a single thing to do with the REC man's killing. Not a single thing. But he had, his head had been turned that much in Castle Ray that he left thinking, I've done that. I've confessed to it. And, uh, and I'm going to send, spend a large, a long number of years in prison, which he did. And there was a lot of people like that, actually, who, who went to Birmingham 6. They went to Guildford 4, but they were, happened to be, Living in the wrong house, uh, in the wrong place at the wrong time, and we were picked up and had confessions forced out of them, and that that used to happen uh, hand over fist in in those days, and that I think that's particularly sad because I mean, obviously it's you know a life was lost or something untoward happened, but also our lives were destroyed through the uh, through the judicial processes. Um, and, and many, many people that I knew in prison, um, I would say I could name a dozen who were innocent of, of very serious charges, were subsequently convicted to life imprisonment. And as I say, none of that will really ever come to the, will, will come into the, the, the news, at least not, not through anything that I'm currently aware of. But it was, it was wholesale at the time. I mean, I, I did do what I was eventually convicted of, of, of doing. So I have no argument in that regard. But if you look at, at, at the way that the whole judicial system was, was stacked uh, against people like me, uh, I mean, I, I was charged with um, 
if you compare me to Soldier F, for instance, uh, Soldier F had executed five people within a 15-minute period, and it tried to execute uh, an unknown uh, number of hours. Uh, he had never, I mean, he had the whole weight of the uh, government apparatus on, on his side. I joined the IRA directly because of, of uh, his actions. Um, and the non-actions of, of the, of the, of the state. And, uh, I ended up serving four years, doing four years for, for what I did. Uh, and many other people served long sentences for what they didn't do. Uh, and I think that is just a, a, a travesty, which is not that often picked up in, in the narrative and, and how the conflict is, uh, is described and, and how the legacy is, is described. Uh, but it, it, it's there. It, it, it happened, and um, and uh, that's. I suppose that's why we're here at, at this moment in time, still arguing the toss about uh, about the legacy and uh, the pursuit of, of justice against killers like Soldier F. And when you come out of prison, or even during your time in prison, uh, yeah, they obviously have a lot of time to think. Um, you were you there when um, obviously the hunger strikers. Um, they went on hunger strike for the, the demands, uh, um, and then eventually those demands would be would be given to wear your own clothes yeah. and, and the like. We, we you would have been in prison when this when this change in right, right through that right, right through that period, yeah, right through that period in the aftermath of the of the hunger strike. Um, I remember when I went up to the long case, the always known as the Maze Prison. Uh, it would have been January. 1982, and uh, I remember seeing the name of, of a hunger striker, Tom McElby, very, very freshly cut in to the uh, paintwork on the heating pipes. And, and you know, the, the the hunger striker was obviously very, very real and very close, but I never felt as, as close to it than I did when I went up to, uh, up to the cash and, and saw his, because he had he had died, I think, in, in um, I think it may have been July, uh, nineteen eighty one, um, and I went to the long case. It would have been six months uh, after that. But I remember, I remember seeing his name etched under the pipe, Tom McElby. I also remember seeing the um, the uh, irregular verbs written in Irish on the wall, but had been. Painted over. Somebody had taken the time to, because I suppose a lot of the prisoners would have been wouldn't have been given paper or pens or writing or reading material. Um, people had to learn Irish on on the on the hoof uh, through the out out through the doors, shouting across the land and so on. Uh, but all the, I remember all all the regular verbs were all written on the wall. And uh, it might have been the lead, or it could have been the corner of something uh, or or. But somebody had whitewashed over the top of them, but you could still see them very, very clear. Uh, so for me, that those two things were revelations. You know, literally, you know, seeing the name and the pipe that's done, but painted over, and then seeing the the irregular verbs and Irish on written on the wall. So I knew that I had sort of entered a different a different place with a particular history. Uh, and coming out of prison, Tony, um, you have to be a changed person. It has to have changed. Well, and, and I suppose that I, 
I mean, you, you do have to grow up quick in those circumstances. I, I was a very young and impressionable uh, teenager when I went to uh, prison uh, and I got out when I was 22 in April 1985. It's a great time to get out, by the way. Um, I think the 80s were sort of a, a, a brilliant decade uh, in, in their own in their own right. I mean, you had the whole sort of uh, minor strike going on at the time. I would have sort of become quite politicised from a left-wing point of view. Uh, did a lot of reading on, on socialism and um, read a lot of Connolly uh, when I was in prison and, and got a better sort of world view uh, of, uh, of, of politics and, and the need for change. So I, I, I get out to suppose a more informed and more rounded um, individual, not any, um, not any less committed to the, the overthrow of the state. Uh, but I, I suppose I, I choose my weapons a wee bit more carefully the, uh, the, the second time round and would have been co- become involved in a lot of uh, community activity, uh, Republican politics, uh, I also had my first inkling that um, that it could be me that would, end, that would end up doing something significant around Bloody Sunday uh, as well. Because when I the day that I got out, there was a big uh, a big do in the house, a big party in, in the house, and then the next day, or I think it might have been the day afterwards, I um, I walked my my plan. I got out on the Wednesday, and my plan on the Friday was to walk the whole length of the city, basically the route that I used to take on dates and stuff from Chantal to Craigan. Uh, they go to the cemetery, they visit my father's grave, and and then they, they go up to my granny and grandfather's house. And so I went to my, my granny and grandfather's house and uh, they were, they had still two of their own children, my uncle Joseph and my aunt Lorraine, were still uh, living with them. But I remember me having a conversation about, uh, with my grandfather about Bloody Sunday. And, uh, and we talked about what I might end up doing. And he said to me, you know, paraphrasing now, but he, he, he said something like, you have done your you have done your bit in prison. What you, you should be you should be doing is, is looking at what can be undone uh, about Bloody Sunday. And it was my grandfather on my mother's side, Connor Quigley, who put the idea in my head in a very real way. Because it, it's you, you do listen to your elders, and you, you should listen to your elders because they're they're wise in different ways than than, than you are. They're more worthy. Uh, but it was him that put the idea in my head that it would be me that would do something. So, um, and, and in nineteen eighty five, it was actually quite difficult to see what could be done because you were still literally in a, in a war uh, situation, war torn city. No uh, inkling or idea of justice. It was all heads down. Uh, the IRA were still very much. Uh, in full flight uh, against the British Army and, and the RUC, uh, and, and vice versa. 
So there was no nobody was really thinking about about justice, but it was my grandfather that put the idea in my head that I could end up. It could be me. And maybe he saw something in me that I didn't. To be honest with you, I'm not. I'm not sure. Um, but I started um, working with the families at the time, getting them together actually uh, for the first time ever since 1972. So it was a full 13 years. You would have thought they would have they would have had more to do with one another, um, but they didn't, and they didn't because they were they were scared. Um, about raising the issue because they were they were uh, fearful that if they did, it would have a negative roll-on effect on their children and maybe by that stage their grandchildren. So a lot of them didn't. And uh, but we we I, I sort of gathered a, a, a good rapport with quite a lot of them, and then you know, they wouldn't all have been Republicans like myself. But I always felt that there was a that there, there was an obvious bond uh, be, between us that would transcend any sort of party political affiliations or, or beliefs that we, we had, and that's the way we conducted it from the very uh, outset. And, and then by what actually happened then is that the the Guildford Four were released, and then the Birmingham Six were released, and I think that started um, it stirred something in, in people like myself that. The, we could be dealing with the art of the possible. Here you had two long-running uh, campaigns to free innocent men and women that had um, that had come to fruition uh, after more than a decade of, of uh, imprisonment, and so that 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 got people thinking. People like myself thinking that maybe there is something that can be done here, um, and the the. The state didn't appear to be as monolithic as it once did. Uh, so, by 1982, uh, utilising the 20th anniversary, we very deliberately, as in some of the families and, and our um, political activists, we deliberately set the 20th anniversary up as a platform uh, to establish a family-based campaign. Uh, with the, the support of as many people as we could gather in, in, in the city around um, around Bloody Sunday. And, we would, and the plan was that we would do that within Derry, uh, within Ireland, and uh, with a focus on, on Britain, I suppose, but also internationally. So from 1992, we didn't really look back. We were on a, we were on a roll. Um, and to cut a long story short, I suppose he had the the outbreak of peace. He had the Good Friday Agreement, um, and the Good Friday Agreement came about in April, um, nineteen ninety-eight. But in January nineteen ninety-eight, the British government announced uh, the second inquiry into Bloody Sunday, again, which was an unprecedented uh, that was an unprecedented outcome. There, there had never been a second inquiry into uh, any event in, in Ireland or, or Britain. So we, we had sort of um, achieved something in, in, in that regard. And it was also uh, international uh, as well because the, the British government at that stage, through negotiations uh, with the likes of Martin McGuinness and John Hume, uh, they agreed that they would introduce a, a international element to it uh, because we made it clear that there would be no trust uh, between us. 
so you had all those things going on. You were dealing with the art of the of the possible um, at that at, at those during those change times, and then so we had the inquiry and all all sort of ensued since then. And the, and the inquiry was, you know, not not the perfect process for for families. I have to say, it was it was um, by two thousand and ten we had the report, and the report was. Um, it was heavy on innocence and late on guilt. I think that's probably the best way to to describe it. And it, it was heavy on the, on the innocence of, of people like my father and the rest of the people who were killed and the wounded. Uh, but it was light when it came to actually uh, having clear um, recommendations uh, for guilt. Um, although it did very, very clearly place the guilt on, on the likes of Soldier F and, and, and ours. Then obviously at the same on the same day as the release of, of the Sabler report, David Cameron, who was a British Prime Minister at the time, gave his uh, now very famous uh, apology in the House of Commons, taking responsibility for his uh, army's actions. And that again, I suppose we we viewed that as a as hugely significant, and historical uh, as well as in, in uh, personal terms, uh, because that had never. I mean, Britain has never apologised for any of its actions in, in Ireland, going back as long as you want. But here we were in 2010. We had a second inquiry. There was far more truth uh, as a result of the inquiry. And we also had a, uh, a government uh, apology delivered uh, by the British Prime Minister. So that, you know, that, that's a huge turnaround when you, when you, when you compare... Uh, what happened in, in 1972, the whole outbreak of the propaganda war and so on, um, to what happened in, to, in, in 2010. So there was a huge gulf in between, but the outcomes were vastly different. And um, I mean, we, we, we bagged that as, as, a, as a huge achievement, as a huge victory. Um, we, had, we considered that we had been vindicated in our claims uh, all along. And by the way, we were never always thanked for, for doing what we what we did. Uh, many of the, the people involved in the campaign would have taken a lot of uh, abuse, particularly down south, actually. Um, I mean, I, I remember at, at one event we had in Phoenix Park, um, the, there were people driving by and, and called us, child murderers and then speeding on and, and, and so on. So you, you had all that going on, all that sort of um, so that's probably a, a, a result of, of the propaganda, propaganda war from our perspective where by 19, the early 1990s onwards people had a very, very skewed view or vision of what had happened north of the, of the border and I think as a result of sex and 31 of the Broadcasting Act, you, uh, that, that skewing was being played out on a, on a day and daily uh, basis. I mean, I remember being interviewed on RT on a number of occasions, and on each occasion they would ask me, was I a member of Sinn Féin? And I would say no, but it was. Uh, line wasn't, wasn't, it didn't bother me in the least, but he still had to be in, go through an interrogation and to be cleared in some way. And I, I was in Sinn Féin then, I'm not now, by the way, but that doesn't really matter. Um, but you could see that there was a fear in the, in the in the southern institutions 
to deal with the full reality of what happened north of the border. And, and, and a narrative had crept in over the years in Section 31 uh, that strongly suggested that the only uh, common enemy that that uh, people had in the South was the IRA and Republican violence and all the rest of the stuff that happened was a result uh, of that. And I think that was, a, that was wrong. Uh, it was very, very skewed. Uh, it, it, it hasn't uh, stood the test of time. Either, by the way, and I think that, that what's going on now, I think south of the of, of the border, is that all that history is, is being sort of unearthed, and I think a lot of the younger generation, certainly people younger than me, I think are starting to see that there was a lot wrong with that narrative. It was a it was a badly skewed narrative. I mean, we're basically brushing whole phases of history uh, under the carpet. The carpet which is becoming too too bumpy to even walk on, and sooner or later, um, you know the the outbreak of peace here in, in in the north. I think a lot of people have revisited that history and, and have, have have learned things about the north that they didn't know of, maybe weren't taught in school, didn't pick up from the uh, media, but we're still there still there to be picked up. So in that sense it's 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 good that Section thirty one has, has failed and there's a there's a whole I mean there's two or three generations now since the peace process that have grown up with a whole new perspective on, on, on the North and something approaching greater accuracy. Yeah and I had Peter Hooten from the farm and he's they're obviously looking for justice for the Hillsborough victims. And recently there was there was a a judgment, and and which which you know supported supported didn't support the police action, but it didn't they wouldn't be charged. Yeah. And um, I just I, I just messaged him and and I said how are you feeling? And he said devastated. And it was just one word. There was no mm. he, he didn't elaborate on it. And he like yeah. Did you ever feel just you know when something especially the recent um. News. Did you just feel mentally, physically exhausted and devastated by the whole process? Because you must have be fed, everybody, all the families must be so mentally strong to continue, you know. And it may be getting easier now, as you're saying, but there must have been some very, very hard years for everyone involved in the campaign. Yeah, yeah. Although there's no doubt there were very dark days, and I, I, I've met that they. Hillsborough families on a number of occasions and I've also met the families from the Stardust uh, fire on, on a number of occasions and, and the, the, uh, while the campaigns are very different the resilience of, of the families is startlingly similar and the personalities and, and the various campaigns are very similar uh, as well which is in some senses reassuring um, so the I, I think I think people like me, need to need to be resilient because there's no other way of of doing it. As I say, your your history here is is uh, it forms a backdrop, but it's also something in, in the foreground, and it, it uh, and and that's because it's it's it has never been fully resolved. I suppose the issue of justice is still uh, outstanding. And it is very difficult uh, at times to accept that the that the state will still 
uh, move to protect the killers almost at any cost. And so you can see that through the, the Hillsborough, I mean, the, the Hillsborough campaign is, 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 is very well led. Um, they're, they're a very, very resilient uh, bunch of people, but they are seriously up against it uh, as well because the, the state will always protect itself. Uh, but I think the city of Liverpool itself, I think, is is a is a great reflection of of the spirit of struggle that they that the families sort of hold. Like even if you look at the way, for instance, that the Sun newspaper is still not purchasable in Liverpool, but you can buy the Sun and Dairy. Shouldn't be purchased anywhere. It's a rag. Shouldn't be shouldn't be purchased anywhere exactly. But it just shows you how how the uh, the city of Liverpool reacted to to the families. Uh, wishes and, and desires at that time that the sun should never be sold again in Liverpool. I think that's something. I mean, even that single act is 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 a tremendous act of, of solidarity, which every city should have. Something like that, that they're that they're that you know, this is something that we are proud of. We stood by the the the, the people who have suffered as a result of the the Hillsborough disaster. Um, but you, you do see sort of. Uh, fantastic sort of vestiges of, of resilience in every every campaign. We love the Stardust people, 1981. You know they're still they're still rallying. They they have actually forced the government now to to hold a a, a, a second inquest, a proper inquest, which I believe is is, is going to commence in in October this year. At, at one stage, you wouldn't have given it. You would have hardly given a penny candle for the family's hopes. Of, uh, of of achieving any uh, vestiges of, of, of justice, yet no, they stuck together. They sorted out their their demands. They came to us looking for advice, as did the Hillsborough families, and we gave it freely. I mean, we've we've had the the Hillsborough people and the Stardust people up up in Derry on quite a number of uh, of occasions, and and we have we have imparted um, ideas and, and 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 tips and. Uh, advice about how they should approach certain things, uh, how they should use their the, the uh, lobbying of, of all political parties, how to get to the heart of institutions, and so on and so forth. We 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 sat them down and talked them through uh, the whole thing. And while we, I mean, people like myself wouldn't claim uh, victory on their behalf, but there's there is a solidarity that exists between struggling peoples. And you, and you see it, it's just a natural thing that that happens. People like us tend to gravitate towards one another. Um, but I have no doubt that the Hillsborough people will will uh, achieve justice in, in their lifetime. And I have no doubt that the uh, the Hillsborough people will achieve justice as well. Um, and I, I think that we've already achieved a, a, a vestige of, of, of justice through the establishment of, of truth. But there's always a road ahead. I think we're we're grown up enough now to realise that that's just the inevitability of struggle. And your three books are all in print and all available to read for for. And you said on did you say on Amazon? They're all available on Amazon. You, you, you might get them in, in uh, various bookshops uh, around around the country, but they they, they can be they they got uh, reasonably easy. Um, and I, I've been told, but I, I don't tend to sort of recommend my own work and leave it too too modest. But I've been told that they are good reads, and I, I'm particularly 
attached to the, uh, the the first one, which I took great pleasure in uh, in, in writing, even though some of the um, some of the source uh, material, some of the sort of kernels of the of the, of the various sort of short, short stories are difficult. I still really enjoyed the, the process. So uh, they're, they're good reads, and they'll, they'll give you a good insight into what um, ordinary life was was uh, about uh, at the time. They're not they're not sad tales, although there's there's sadness among it. Uh, I'm not I'm not that type of person that'll that'll just give you a, a, a sad tale and then not give you something to cheer you up. So there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of good humour uh, in, in the books. I, I, I'm told that the, um, the the books are 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 good to very good, and uh, the 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 first book um, was first read by Jimmy McGovern, no less a person and somebody who has good contacts with the the Hillsborough families as well, and he gave me a very good quote for the cover of it, and the. Uh, Second one, they got a, a, a quote from Frank McGuinness, who a playwright from Buckcranna, who, who also spoke at the launch. And then for the third one, the scalper and me, Damien Dempsey, no less a person, gave me a, a, a quote. He was the first to read it um, outside of editors and, and so on. Um, so they're, 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 I'm told they're good books. They're, they're full of humour, full of crack. There's obviously uh, critical stories and critical issues within there uh, to do with life and loss uh, not least of all uh, my father um, but they're not they're not sad stories they're 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 good they're good memoirs based on on the lives and times of um, of this man's wee boy myself growing up through my teenage years uh, out of prison out of prison the bloody Sunday campaign and then and then vindication and it's all the characters that you meet uh, along the way uh, so if you want to know anything about Derry in those times and even in modern times, you'll do you'll not do any any um, any better than read uh, this man's wee boy, uh, the dead beside us, and the scalper and me. And you can get them on Amazon, or you probably get them in bookshops and various places as well. We had Dr. McLaughlin on, um, who who was, is, sells Derry as a <clears throat> tourist destination. Um, yeah, but, yeah. but one thing about um, you just mentioned there about the books, but there's also the Museum of Free Derry, for, yeah. which which I'm, sh- I'm sure is um, really worth visiting. Yeah, I, I'm actually the chairperson of the of the museum, um, and it's it's now opened after a, a, a long period being closed under the COVID restrictions. The Museum of Free Derry is uh, it is what it says in the tin. Uh, I suppose it's the uh, it's a story of of a, of a risen people. Um, it's a story of of the state trying to um, kill the, the um, kill the risen people and drive them off the streets. And it's a story of of, of the of, of the rise of the relatives campaign uh, around Bloody Sunday and our eventual uh, vindication. It's uh, it's in my book. Sorry, not not actually in my book, but in my view, uh, it is the the best uh, tourist facility in in the city, if if not the whole of the northwest. So, if you're Derry bound or northwest, even Donegal bound uh, this year, call into the, the museum. You'll be made uh, very welcome. 
Uh, we have a full staff, very professional, uh, who will talk you through the history and, and assist you in various ways. Or you can you can walk the museum uh, by yourself, but I'll guarantee it'll be an uplifting experience for you. So you'll be very welcome if you come to length. You said earlier on in the podcast that, um, you know, Bloody Sunday is always behind you and it's always in front of you. But you have um, you, you have a life outside Bloody Sunday. You have a day job. Um, can you tell us a little about away from the books and away from Bloody Sunday, yeah. what, 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 what daily life is for you and what you do? Yeah, well, my, I, I work for an organisation called the Healthy Living Centre uh, Alliance and that's uh, an organisation that promotes um, better health and, and well-being for ordinary people and particularly for, for people who um, are growing up in disadvantaged circumstances. So the, the, the Alliance is a network of, of 29 organisations all north of the border um, who combine their ideas and activities to provide a, a better product, um, to collaborate uh, better uh, in, in terms of, of uh, what they or we provide to working class communities in terms of wealth, health and well-being. So we collaborate on mental health, uh, physical health, we have a huge collaboration with the government organisations uh, in health, um, working with people who live with long-term pain. We do a lot of work around social prescribing, which I'm conscious not everybody um, fully uh, is fully aware of. But social prescribing is, is basically a, a new phenomenon that's grown up in, in recent times whereby a GP can refer a patient uh, into a community program um, as opposed to or alongside medication. So it's, it's, it's a means of, of tackling loneliness, um, isolation, people being separated from their nat- natural community through ill health, um, mental ill health and so on. And it works uh, because it, it, it actually, GPs would tell us that a good 30 to 40 percent of their time is spent with patients who don't require medication. They require a better sense of connectedness uh, with community through community development uh, and so on. So we have responded and, and created um, social prescribing mechanisms uh, throughout the North that, uh, that people have benefited from and still do. And we have also created a, a new uh, relationship, I suppose, with uh, general practitioners and pharmacists and so on, all of which can now refer into the community sector rather than uh, having to medicate people or, I suppose, in some senses, we're still not being able to do anything for them. So it's created a new thought process, a new, um, it's created new outcomes and, and new sort of health pathways for, for people. Uh, so I, I chair the All-Ireland Social Prescribing Network um, with uh, quite, an, quite a few people um, from right across the island. Uh, my co-chair is, is a man called David Robinson, who's a consultant geriatrician at, at um, uh, St. James's Hospital in, in Dublin. Um, so I would do a lot of a lot of my work would be strategic, um, either within the north or throughout the island. 
but uh, it's also about um, trying to improve how the the various health and living centres deliver their services to people on the ground as well. So it's good work. I mean, it's not unconnected, I suppose, from my outlook uh, in life, which is always about trying to um, make things better, about trying to improve uh, relationships, either in terms of health um, and, and the various sort of sectors that, that, that work on health and often compete. Um, and it, it's, it, it, it fits my sort of worldview uh, as, a, as a socialist as, as well, I suppose, uh, in that um, the, the health service is, is a very valuable tool that shouldn't um, shouldn't be uh, shouldn't fall into the hands of, of private privatization, uh, nor should it be abused by government. It should be it should be treated as a are sort of equivalent of the crown jewels in, in a sense and, and protected for everyone's benefit. I actually do think that that, that health will be one of the unifying factors uh, in relation to the ongoing debate about Irish unity. Once we're we're in the north, you have the national health service, which I think is one of the one of the the great things about Britain. Britain has a national health service. Uh, the Republic of Ireland doesn't have in, in the same way. But I, I do think we, we could have a, a, a very useful debate around what it, what it, what a national health service could look like throughout the island as a unifying uh, factor, what Southern Ireland could learn from the North. And that, that's not to say that the health service here is perfect, but it, I, I think it's something to behold. It, it's open to abuse and, and all sorts of stuff, but it's still something to behold. Yeah. Down here, our health service is um, is broken, and it's a two-tier oh, health. It's a two- I mean, the children's hospital uh, alone, the National Children's Hospital, will tell you that there's something badly wrong yeah. in, in the system. It's an absolute mess. No, and it's a two-tier system as well. You know, if if you've mm. if you've got money, you'll be treated, and if you don't, yeah. you will. Yeah. You just have to Which wait. It's fundamentally it's fundamentally wrong in yeah. my book. Oh, hundred percent. And I and I, I I've had people on um, from Scotland, and you know. Tommy Sheridan was on and we spoke about Scottish independence and, you know, I said, you know, you don't want to lose your NHS. And he said, no, we just want to make it better because exactly. like, yeah. we, like we are envious down here of the NHS and um, because I'm close to the border here or the old border mm. and like my pals can go to doctors for free. I can't. It's 55 quid for me to go to doctor yeah. and, and yeah. like yeah. a lot of people they're ill, but they won't go because they just can't afford it. Because not mm. everybody makes the the medical card. But um, listen, it's it's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. It's it's you know it's it's tough to sometimes to listen um, from the outside and to try and put yourself in in those people in their shoes and especially the families like it is for the families of the Hillsborough and the Stardust. But yeah. it's been magnificent. But I have a to get you know it's it's been really good to get an insight. But every time I have a guest on, I I tell him I have a Celtic old time machine. Now if it's a footballer, he'll go back and relive a game. If it's a musician, he might go to a gig. Um, if it's a politician, he might go to a you know a moment that was um, that there was a victory in his political life. But like, where does? Where does it take you if you climb in? Is there, is there a moment that you wish you could go back to or something from your past that you'd like to revisit? 
I suppose uh, the the loss of McLaurin has been a profound and, and um, long-lasting experience. Um, so if I could go back, I would obviously undo that. Um, I mean, no no youngster should lose a, should lose their, their parent, I suppose, as as, as we did in, in, in such a brutal manner, but it, it happens all the time. Um, the high points, uh, getting out of jail was huge. Getting out of jail in 1985 was even better. All the stuff going on politically and music and, and our ways. And then the, um, I suppose, I take great pride, I suppose, in, in, in relation to, be a, to being asked to uh, read the family statement in, in the Guildhall Square in 2010 in response to the Savile Inquiry and the British Prime Minister's uh, apology for Bloody Sunday. That was a, that was a high point for me. Um, and it's something I often think about. It was huge for the city, uh, absolutely huge. It was huge for the island. Uh, I'm told uh, by many people, and I think for, for many people uh, growing up in Britain, uh, at the time, it was huge for them as well. So, I mean, all, all that's for the good. I think I'm, I'm always up for trying to change people's perspective uh, for the better. And, and that experience, I think, is, is, uh, will always remain solidly um, beautiful in, in, in my mind. So that's, that's what I think about in good times. Well, Tony, all I can say is thank you so much for sharing some of your story with us and I think after listening to this podcast, I think it, there'll be a lot of people going on to Amazon or going down the local bookshop and to get the full story. So once again, thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. You're very, very welcome. You're very welcome. Let's hope that Tony and all the families of those murdered on Bloody Sunday get the justice they deserve and that all guilty parties are brought to justice. And our thoughts are also with those families of the victims of the Stardust on Hillsborough. Folks, please follow us on social media or on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter and you'll find links to all our audio, video, articles and a few bits and bobs. And don't forget, folks, if you are enjoying our free content and you can afford a small donation, please click the donate button on CelticFansIn.com and that will allow us to continue to produce quality, independent Celtic fan journalism across all our platforms and hopefully soon back in the flesh at Celtic AM or, or pre-match event in Glasgow thanks as always to Ronan McQuillan for producing this episode and his hard work all week also to our video editor Daniel Fogner Aaron Boyle who steers the good ship in Glasgow while we're away and Richie our graphic designer and to all our fanzine and website contributors and of course to all our guests who joined us this week and those coming up next week for chat please keep listening and as always thanks very much to our listeners viewers and readers for the continued support well, folks, it's the weekend. I'll be watching the boys on Celtic TV via my virtual season ticket. That kickoff Saturday is 3pm and then it's going to be all Italian mania on Sunday, isn't it? So that's it for another Celtic Soul podcast. And this week we play out with Derry's finest once again, Declan McLaughlin, with a song called Running Up The Hill. And I think it's very appropriate for the podcast and the guests we've just had on. So, folks, stay safe, keep the faith. And we'll see you next week.
many times Must we do this to ourselves Been on our knees a million times Asking for your help Of all the answers that I don't understand Like I did not draw the firing line But I know where to stand Nobody told me must have heard it all Part of the graveyard, the sun no longer shines. There's no fences or barbed wire, but still she's doing time until she gets the answers to the questions that she has. It's hard to build a future when you're haunted by the past. It's like running uphill. It's like running As the bodies hit the pavement The world seen what you've done As the bodies hit the pavement Somebody's singing that we will overcome It's like running uphill It's like running uphill Everybody gathered here on Central Drive Is marching in the shadow of the truth they tried to hide And every step that's taken is a breaking of your law For your justice never added up to the murder that we saw And time don't make no difference to the people that still care In thousands we march the streets still knowing that you're there like running uphill It's like running uphill It's like running deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 